welcome to Talking Musicology, a bi-monthly podcast in which we discuss recent publications and issues in the field of musicology. My name is Liam Cagney. I'm Stephen Graham. This month we're going to base our discussion around one article by a well-known musicologist, Richard Taruskin. Taruskin, as the saying goes, needs no introduction, but I'll give one anyway. Currently Professor of Music Scholarship at the University of California, Berkeley, Taruskin initially made his name as a scholar of Russian music. He's also that rarest of things, a public musicologist, regularly contributing to the pages of the New York Times, New Republic and other such organs, famously having had a bit of a long-running spat with Charles Rosen in the pages of the New York Review of Books. Taruskin's chief contribution to the discipline is his authorship of the Oxford History of Western Music in five volumes, a genuinely monumental piece of scholarship with as many detractors as it has admirers, one of the chief issues for its detractors being Truskin's perceived partisan disdain for post-tonal composition. Truskin then is nothing if not contentious, and it's obvious in reading his writings that that's exactly how he likes it. The article by Truskin we're going to discuss here is called Two Serendipities, Keynoting a Conference, Music and Power, and it's published in the Journal of Musicology. It was originally delivered as the keynote address at the conference Music and Power, Historical Problems and Perspectives in Russia, Eastern Europe and Eurasia, held at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio in February 2013. In his article, Taruskin tackles the issue of music and power through examining the careers of Russian composers Krenikov, Kabalevsky and Shostakovich, whom Taruskin refers to as the trio of Soviet officialdom. The main focus, though, is on Krenikov, a composer who not only towed the line, but lent himself willingly to the ruling Soviet regime. Like Shostakovich, Krenikov was a member of the Supreme Soviet from Stalin's time, and he served as head of the Union of Soviet Composers for a total of 43 years, until the end of the Soviet regime, a position that gave him sway over many others in the musical establishment. Taruskin notes, The ruling elite of the Soviet Union were all Krenikov's personal friends, he did not merely rub shoulders with the powerful the way Kabalevsky did. Krenikov was one of them. Taruskin refers to Krenikov as an oligarch and quotes him years after the collapse of the USSR, praising Stalin for Stalin's musical acuity. Stalin knew music better than any one of us. Krenikov also praises the much maligned Zhdanov. In his typically bold way, Taruskin goes on to make the case for Krenikov as an example of a composer whose successful career makes him, for us as musicologists, somebody worth taking seriously. Krenikov, as the one Soviet musician whose hands were on the real levers of power, Truskin writes, needs to be studied carefully, especially for the positive impact he achieved when wielding those levers. We end with something that on Truskin's part seems to me to be an apologia for careerism. Truskin writes, We are taught to be suspicious of successful adaptations. We call them compromise and selling out more likely the first when the conditions adapted to are viewed as primarily political, more likely the second when they are seen as economic or commercial. And we are taught to admire and to idealise the maladapted, the losers. Yet whatever the extremities of the social environment, those who are able to adapt to them can have successful careers. The Soviet system in effect attempted a revival of the older patronage model. It did for successful composers what the opulent and ostentatious patronage of the Esterhazys once did for Haydn. So these are clearly quite contentious positions. And Truskin ends with what he calls, quote, a modest invitation to supplement our study of artists and artworks with a greater focus on the grittier subject of careers, something all artists have to make in addition to their art. It is there that we will stand to gain the most in our efforts to understand music and power and the ways they interact, end of quote. 
So there's lots to chew on here, I think. And for me, anyway, some positive points as well as some negative ones. Uh, Stephen, is there anything that stood up for you in particular when reading this article? Well, the thing that you've culminated on, the thing about careerism and a different model of how we might study music history is it's kind of like a black hole dragging us all forward towards it in some way. I'm going to try and hold off on getting to that for a few minutes. So before we get there, I just wanted to look at some positive things in the article, actually. There's some great historical detail here. I love the stories that he gives from, for example, from his time as a student in Moscow in the early 70s. So he tells the story of, and this is one of his two serendipities, um, of his aunt being friends with Krennikov. What is the actual link there again? Taruskin's aunt Nina somehow knew Krennikov, and uh, Taruskin says it's incredible that my aunt Nina should be friends with him, and he never figured out what the relation was. Yeah, so this leads to this encounter that Taruskin has with Krennikov at this concert, which celebrates his music in the early 70s, and it's this big festive ceremonial concert in the Hall of Congress, and this is in 1972, and it's this big, huge, 6,000-person attended concert, and this big star of singing Soviet music at the time appears. There's this teenage adulation. There's a whole there's a whole to do around Krennikov. People are throwing bouquets of flowers. On yeah, in a, in a Beatles-esque way. So Taruskin is astonished by this. He's especially astonished when he thinks about the kind of what he sees as the banality of Krennikov's music. But against the kind of common view of Krennikov as this scarecrow, this word is used many times the scarecrow, this kind of functionary of, of Soviet power. Taruskin thinks that through this encounter he has with him, he sees a different kind of a figure and he sees a, a more generous and more kind of historically complicated figure than myth would have us believe. And he talks about the way that Krennikov supported Prokofiev's first wife. In reading this article, there's so much detail. It's somewhere between gossipy and uh, yeah. useful for the record, all these different relations and intrigues. Krennikov, in a, an unpublicized and unostentatious way, supported Prokofiev's widow, his first wife, who outlived um, Prokofiev's second wife. This is one of the positive impacts that Taruskin mentions that we should pay attention to. Rather than maligning and turning Krennikov into a straw man, we should pay attention to these other ways in which he helped out. Which is a, stra- which is a, a very reasonable and humane point, but then it's coloured quite strangely, quite soon after that, because Taruskin makes clear that it might as much have been a strategic or personally motivated bit of kind of animus towards Prokofiev as anything else, because Krennikov had a lot of antipathy for Prokofiev's second wife. And the idea is that perhaps his support for Prokofiev's first wife was merely a kind of a a piece of resentment against Prokofiev's second wife, one, and then second, a strategic manoeuvre that was done or carried out in order to enable the establishment to kind of elevate Prokofiev to this stature of a great Russian composer hero after his death. So kind of rescue or resuscitate his his reputation now that he was safely dead and safely kind of ensconced in, in the past. So there may have been as many strategic and kind of calculating reasons for Krennikov's generous, supposedly generous treatment of Prokofiev's first wife as there were kind of noble reasons. So that kind of clouds that picture a little bit. But maybe the more interesting idea here is for us 
as kind of scholars is the idea of looking at history in a slightly more textured and localized way. And I think to that to that extent, the the article makes its points quite well. They're fairly banal points, but nevertheless, it it supports them quite well. So the idea that rather than looking at these big, huge, block formed notions of history where music is either, as Rebecca Mitchell says in her introduction to this special issue of the Journal of Musicology, music is either seen, especially in kind of supposedly totalitarian contexts, as resistance or cooperation. Instead, we can see the different maneuvers and textures of local interactions and exchanges and encounters and so on. And that is what Turuskin is pleading for here. And insofar as that is a call to um, musicologists to have a bit more of a developed or localized or nuanced historical method and, and attention, then that that's fine. But where it runs into problems is later on where, on the one hand, he ends up talking about this careerism stuff. So where he posits musicology as sociology or his, um, historiography as sociology. That's one problem. The other problem that I noticed was this binarism, which runs throughout a lot of the article and actually rev- actually tells us a lot about Taruskin as a, a reminds us about Taruskin's, I think you used the word partisanship. Mm-hmm. So this idea of liberty versus security, which he, he stakes a lot of his argument on. So the Soviet, Soviet Union at this time in the 20th century as a society which skewed too far towards what he describes as security and the West as a society which skews, in his eyes, too far towards what he calls liberty. Now, on the surface, this looks like a this looks like a, a healthy move to make as a scholar. It looks like a, a nuancing gesture where he's starting to de demonumentalize our vision of the West and the Soviet Union. But then he ends up just kind of reinforcing that the monumentality of these two kind of areas. And not only does he do that, but he injects. This, bin- this binary of liberty in the West and security in the Soviet Union with all these uh, ethical and, and kind of subjective ideas about the value of these different social structures, which is, a, in my mind, a fairly reasonable thing to do, not- notwithstanding the problems with his actual verdicts or opinions about those two things. Injecting history with subjective judgments is unavoidable. But the problem in this case is that he later on tries to suggest that somehow historians should be objective. And this is a problem that runs throughout the Oxford history, this tension between his proposal that his history should be objective and historians should step outside their own judgments in drawing up history. And then the actual details of his history, which in the Oxford case and in this case are massively coloured by subjectivity and, and judgment. And that can be seen here in his opposition of liberty and security and the way that he moralizes about the West going too far in one direction and the Soviet Union going too far in another direction. So that's I had two main problems with the article. That's the first one. We can get to the careerism stuff. What did you make of all the liberty and security business? I felt like toward the end of the article, he came a bit more overt about some of his own presuppositions. I think there's a mature attitude uh, encouraged here about the relation between artists and the state. And it's quite... It's something I've been looking at at the moment in relation to just my own area of research. New music ensembles in the 1970s and state subsidies and how economic conditions might influence musical style and so on. And I think it's really useful for him to bring that in here. But I agree that there's a bit too much of a kind of binarism. I'll read out the the quotation where Taruskin talks about liberty and security. 
In the contest of liberty and security, Soviet power drew the line in music as everywhere else so far over on the side of security as ultimately to weaken not only the vitality of cultural life, but the very foundations of their polity. And we in the West have tended to draw the line so far over on the side of liberty as to threaten social justice and to confine matters to what interests us here to undermine the viability not only of contemporary academic and concert music, but all institutions that support the performance of classical music. Now, this seems like an extreme opinion to me. Yeah. What's well, a value-laden judgment? Value-laden judgment, exactly. I mean, it seems that Taraskin criticises certain certain points of view and then he actually just does, does the same thing. So, for example, he's been critical of somebody like Pierre Boulez before. Boulez is much maligned uh, among certain musicologists as a kind of extremist and famously somebody who said that anybody who didn't compose using the 12-tone method was useless. But in a relatively recent article that Truscan wrote about an American post-tonal composer, his name escapes me for the moment, um, yeah, the title of the article is How a Useful Composer Becomes Useless. And I was struck by the similarity between Truscan's language here and that of Boulez. Yeah, it just seems to come down to some extent to power and who has the most influence in their opinion rather than some kind of objective criterion for, for deciding these matters of taste. When Truscan is talking about our having too much liberty and suggesting that this leads to kind of self-indulgence and navel-gazing and so on, he seems to be saying that we're decadent, we have a decadent musical culture, though he doesn't use that word, which he criticises in his Oxford history at a certain point. I'm fascinated by his style of writing and its relation to points he wants to make, because he's such a brilliant writer that it's it's quite seductive to fall into to the points he's trying to make, and he is very persuasive, I think in making them and I think that's a big part of uh, what's made him so successful as well as his his excellent scholarship of course he himself seems to me to be quite enthralled to power in the way he's disgusting Krenikov and others there is an ambiguity there so obviously the the repressive elements of the Soviet regime are, are bad but the way they can glorify certain individuals who very successfully and adeptly play the game seems to be something that Taruskin quite likes there's so many contradictions and, and kind of doubling back on things within this text, which is, it's kind of head spinning at times. It is very seductive and it is very powerful. And he does write very, very well. It's, it's not clouded. It's, it's clear. It's, it's seemingly objective. Again, it's kind of maybe a false objectivity because as we've seen in the quote you just read out, and as it's clear in other parts of the article, for example, where he roundly dismisses the German idealist tradition and kind of roundly dismisses someone like Elliot Carter. I mean, the the opposition he puts in at one point between Carter and Kranikov is incredibly cheap and unconvincing to my mind and calls up that whole conflict that you referred to earlier between Rosen and uh, Taruskin, where Taruskin described Rosen as um, a Cold War apologist in quite a snide and, and kind of cynical way. And I'm someone who has time for Taruskin, but when, when it kind of descends into that kind of name-calling, it becomes a bit of a problem, especially when Taruskin is supposedly operating from this kind of objective or historical standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just, I, I don't understand the kind of blindness that Taruskin kind of perpetrates here. He just has, seems to have a kind of a, a blindness to his own prejudices and his own kind of method in the way that he he describes Krebs, for example, as making a subjective mistake, even whilst roundly dismissing German idealism and reducing the West and the USSR to kind of moralized monoliths. Um, he just seems blind to his own 
kind of maneuvers in this article. Um, and there's a kind of a ho-hum contrariness to his writing, which I find incredibly frustrating and annoying, as much as I also enjoy his clear scholarly accomplishments and the kind of historical detail and, and expansiveness he brings to a lot of music history. There's just this ho-hum, like I said, ho-hum contrariness where he kind of refers to this dispute he has with Charles Rose and then he said, oh yeah, this thing was happening. And it, it's kind of this this playing down of of his own part in these in these conflicts. And it's a kind of a disassembly where his own kind of perspective and subjectivity is is kind of done away with even whilst it's being written in really strongly in the way that he's framing this stuff as objective when it's really clearly subjective characterization of of music history. So, so what, it's, a, it's a typically ideological situation then where there is this ideology yeah. which masks itself and presents itself as natural. Exactly. It's pure it's pure tra- ideology. Transparent. I don't like that word but it's just <laughs> It I, is I you're right. Bring, I have to bring it in. I think it's overused but in this context it's uh, I think it's You're completely right. It's it's pure ideology and you know what there's nothing wrong with that. We're all we're all caught in ideology. We're all, we're all, it's inescapable. But I would love a little bit more um, self-consciousness and a little bit more ref- self-reflectivity about his biases against things like modernism and post-war composition and the way in which he, as Franklin Cox has pointed out in his critique of um, the Oxford history. Have you read that? Yeah. Yeah. Really, really interesting and compelling critique from Franklin Cox. And as he points out, Taruskin's point of view is not only bound to a, a fundamental contradiction insofar as it presents itself as objective but is anything but, but it's also far too schematic and ignores clear, important historical detail as, for example, we can see in the, the whole business around the CAA supposedly funding post-war composition and American composition and all that stuff, the things that have Amy Beale and um, Martin Iden have brought a lot of texture and, and kind of detail to and shown the kind of falsehoods that have driven accounts from people like Taruskin. So so those problems are all large and in charge in this article as much as they are in other Taruskin pieces, alongside all the other many, many positive points in this article. So maybe we could we could finish up looking at this article by talking about this notion of careerism. So do you want to just remind us what you were saying earlier and what Taruskin's kind of idea is here. Okay, so he's trying to introduce a kind of more nuanced interpretation of the role of systems of power in the elevation or otherwise of artists. And this he's doing in contrast to what he calls a Germanic romantic concept of quote-unquote artistic depth. And he says this is a view of the artist as at times an underdog, staying true to himself or herself, the sort of sentimental idealising prejudice that impedes our understanding of the relationship we're convened to investigate. So this is all well and good, but he insists on calling this type of figure the loser or idealization of the loser. I could couldn't help but thinking of somebody like Kafka here as, you know, an obvious refutation or rebuttal of what he's saying. Somebody who is a loser maybe, uh, um seen in these terms, somebody who didn't really succeed in any artistic establishment who sort of had a lot of self-doubt and so on and yes who is obviously brilliant and, and just but just couldn't succeed within those systems so it's not quite convincing to me to propose that in itself uh, this sort of climbing the ladder careerism political savvy is sufficient to to make an artist valid and worthy of our investigation i wasn't quite sure of exactly what Taruskin was saying about this because he doesn't I don't think he's absolutely explicit. He's kind of sketching his position, but he doesn't really 
He doesn't really uh, say outright what his position is, which is probably intentional. Yeah, there's, there seem to be large issues with that, which I want to come to in a moment. But do you have the quote about the consolation of losers? Because it just made me hoot. I was reading this on the plane, and I just just hooted when I got to that part. I've got it here, actually. So he's talking about um, this idea of personal depth. And Krebs, this writer Krebs, describes Kavaleski as lacking an essential personal depth, which Taruskin thinks is a subjective mistake on Krebs' part. And as we've been saying... Taruskin makes many what we might call subjective mistakes in this article. And he says that seen in this sense, this idea, this for him, this incongruous idea of personal depth tells us that German idealism, the German kind of romantic tradition in art and maybe in philosophy as well, is a constellation of losers replacing aristocratic support. Our German romantic aesthetic heritage is in that sense an aesthetic of sour grapes. This is just dropped into this article for no apparent reason other than Taruskin's personal animus towards the German tradition. So, you know, make of that what you will. I think it's uh, actually a very interesting area, even if we don't agree with it. He's talking about, he's always kind of creating this bugbear out of uh, German romanticism and so on. But if we look at, you know, the very general context of German romanticism, much of it is reacting to the French Revolution and it's tied up with this... I think the, this image of the artist is tied up with our ideas of freedom, personal freedom, self-determination, and so on. He's ambivalent towards this bestowal of freedom on the artist to, to act in a way that's independent, independent in the sense of maybe not having to rely on state subsidy and so on. And that's kind of connection that I mentioned earlier on that I find interesting with the present day situation of many artists to what degree they are, if not tainted, then compromised by their having to take stipends to maintain a living, applying for bursaries and so on. There is a constellation, to pick up on that word again, of different ideas that are, I think, implied within what Tereskin is talking about here. Yeah, and there's, don't get me wrong, there is there's a lot to say about progress from um, aristocratic state support, um, through to different forms of cultural practice in the 20th century. I refer you to an interesting book called Sounds of the Underground, released on the <laughs> University of Michigan Press in 2016, which thinks about some of these questions. But the use of very emotive terms like sour grapes and um, losers is maybe quite revealing of... Donald Trump-esque. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, so but, if you're not making money, then you're losing. Well, yeah, so this brings us to this issue. So Taruskin seems, towards the end of this article, to make an argument for history or musicology as sociology, where what matters is, or maybe not what matters, but what the focus should be um, is the artist's ability to adapt to an environment rather than any artistic or ethical decisions or actions they make within that environment. So in other words, it's success as a metric of, or rather position as an expression of historical value, if you like. So success in career terms, and he, he doesn't quite pin this down, but he, he seems to imply that he's talking simply about success as a measure of personal achievement against what was it, personal goals or something like that, which mm-hmm. seems a very muddy, muddy framework. But nevertheless, that's his idea. And he wants to replace judgments about history, which are based on what we can identify, I guess, as ethical or aesthetic criteria. He wants to replace these with just measures of success. So this seems to me to be very confusing. It's, it is reflecting in one sense 
Rebecca Mitchell's idea in the introduction that I'll read out a quote. She says, Each article in this special issue of the Journal of Musicology offers a better understanding of the various levels and spaces in which power was enacted by state bureaucrats, musicians, composers, critics, and enthused audiences while remaining aware of the circumstances of everyday life in the Soviet context. Not every artistic act must be approached as an expression of censorship or resistance. Rather than a top-down model that emphasizes control and opposition, these articles demonstrate that relationships between music and power are better understood as relational, providing possibilities as well as limits. So that's all well and good. So they're talking about the different relative poles of kind of power and personal agency, I guess, in different contexts. And as we've said, a lot of Taruskin's article gives a lot of really valuable detail within that kind of context and shows how Krenikov and Kabalevsky and other composers were negotiating these positions that they found themselves in um, within the Soviet context. Where it becomes a problem then maybe is when it's put forward as a model of history or music history. So what I see this as is basically a kind of an actor network model of kind of music history. So it's a sociological model where position and reaction and action within a context is maybe maybe trumps aesthetic and ethical judgments. So any action within that context is is merely valuable or worthy of note depending on its results and not depending on any inherent ethical or aesthetic value we might identify in that action. So what this seems to remove to me is, first of all, clearly music. So where is music in this? Where is artistic value in this? How can we step outside these networks of relations and actions and actually make a judgment about aesthetic value, which we need to do as historians, I think, and also ethical value. So what if one of these acts is what we might judge? And of course, ethics is a has to be a negotiation and a decision we make. But what if one of these acts is a, a murderous act, which gains someone a position of power, for example, in the situation? Or what if one act is a cynical um, elevation of one composer's widow over another one of the composer's wives. What if these acts are coloured by historical motivations and ethical textures that we want to draw attention to rather than just looking at them in a kind of a means end action result kind of way? So Tereskin's idea here that music history might become pure actor network sociology, in other words, just about networks, about flat kind of interactions that we can't impose a value judgment on, seems to me to be unproductive in some ways. I'm not sure I agree with all of that. I'm not sure that he wants wholesale to replace historiography with this actor network sociological approach or to remove the aesthetic issue completely. Although you're right to see him as doing that in this article. That's essentially Mm. what he's doing. I thought in a more productive way it was raising the issue of how our moral judgments determine to some degree the type of history we write, where we have these moral valuations of the people who we should write about and who should be important and how maybe that's something we're not aware of, but it does determine how history gets written and maybe that's not something that should determine how history gets written. I'm left I'm left a bit muddled at the end. I don't know what Taruskin's argument essentially is in a broader sense. I can understand how it played out in this article and as we've been saying, and it's worth making the point again and again, he comes out with interesting results as a result of all of this. You know, he he is he, able to say interesting things about the the texture of the way that Krenikov, for example, responded to his situation. You know, a situation in which choice and action were obviously limited, uh, as they are in all historical kind of situations. And he, he shows how Krenikov reacted to that and Kabalevsky reacted to that and how 
the state, how the characteristics of the Soviet state drove them into certain positions and identities and how they kind of responded to, to that wider context. So he, he, he is able to say many, many interesting things, but as a broader historical model, I'm just not sure. I can agree with him insofar as he wants us to, as he says, supplement our study of artists and artworks with a greater focus on the grittier subject of careers, something all artists have to make in addition to their art. It is there that we'll stand to gain the most in our efforts to understand music and power and the ways they interact. Insofar as that might be a model for the study of music and power, okay, maybe, but as a broader historical model, I'm I'm just not sure. Right, and I don't think um, his case for Krennikov, well, personally, it doesn't really stand up, despite the fact that he writes so eloquently and so persuasively and in such a way as to actually make you take seriously this composer whose music, from an aesthetic point of view, probably doesn't warrant it. Well, isn't that interesting? So, so why is he focusing on Krennikov then? Partly because I think he likes uh, Tarskin, that is, I think he likes playing the devil's advocate and playing up on this persona as somebody who's like a rogue and a maverick in musicology. Mm. There are one or two statements he makes just in passing within this paper where it shows a level of conceit in this regard that he thinks that he's sort of stirred things up and he likes to think of himself in this way. So I think that that actually, for me, it's a subtext to, to this article. He's not ever going to really express an orthodox view. More often than not, he'll, he'll do the opposite. Um, yeah, and I suppose, as he says towards the start of the article, he, he's interested in not, as he says, dichotomizing music and power. He wants to look at ways that... He says that, you know, often when people study music and power, it's the ways in which power uses music and musicians. And for him, it's he, he thinks it's more interesting to look at how music is sometimes powerful and how musicians are sometimes powerful. So I guess Krennikov allows him to look at, at that idea. This month we'll finish by um, returning to something we spoke about in our last podcast. In our last podcast, Stephen and I discussed the so-called New Discipline, a musical movement spearheaded by a group of composers, one of whom is Jennifer Walsh. And following our podcast, Jennifer got in touch with us just to take up a couple of the issues we'd spoken about. We each expressed reservations about the use of the body sorry, the use of the concept of the body in some of these articles. And Jennifer had the following to say, which I'll read out. With regard to the body, I share your pain. The issue for me is that for a long time, classical and by extension, new music has pretended we don't have bodies at all. And that somehow when we were at a concert, it doesn't matter whether the back partita is played by a hot 20-year-old girl with a low-cut top or an obviously gay man or a black guy in a wheelchair, that somehow we will ignore that and just listen to the quote-unquote, purity of the music. And we know this is utter bullshit. Blind auditions and orchestras have told us in numbers how utter bullshit it is. I've tried to address this for years, and the mainstream new music doesn't want to talk about it. No discussion I know of, and maybe it's out there and I just don't know about it, addresses 1970s music theatre in terms of gender. It's just along the lines of, the first violinist leans over the shoulder of the second violinist. But that is extremely different if the first violin is a petite Asian woman in her 60s or a pot-bellied white man in his 60s. Also in new music, people tend to talk about the body as if it's a piano, as if bodies are interchangeable and mean the same things. So I like to see these dumbass composers making pieces where there's lots of physical activity on the stage, but it's just replicating boring gender roles. And when you talk to them, you realise they weren't even thinking about people as people. They just wanted one person here doing this sound and another there doing another sound. We just thought we would give Jennifer the opportunity to uh, reply to what we said. And in general, we invite anybody to get in touch with us who feels strongly or 
otherwise about anything we've spoken about? Richard Taruskin, <laughs> for example. Yes, we're calling to you, Richard. <laughs> so that's the end of episode four of Talking Musicology. We thank you very much for listening. I've been Liam Cagney. <laughs> I've been Stephen Graham. <laughs> See you next time.